Hey, find your sermon outline there in your bulletin. And let's open our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter. That's in the Old Testament. If you're using the book rack Bible there in front of you, you'll find it on page 297, Deuteronomy chapter 15. That's where we'll be in just a few minutes. So we're in a series we're calling Children of Compassion. We're trying to model the Father's heart for people in need. So far in the series, we've looked at the Father of Compassion. That's who God is. Last week, Pastor Danny shared a message on the issue of compassion for the helpless, people that need a supportive community around them, the life of Mephibosheth. Today, we come to the topic of compassion for the hungry. I want to talk about how do we show compassion for those who are poor, those who need food, physical needs. And it's an amazing subject. This is a subject that is not easy to preach. In fact, as I thought about this, I thought, is there one text we can go into? And I, I searched and searched and felt that actually I need to do sort of an overview today. And I want to show, share with you some things that I think will help harness some of the tensions that we face. Because the reality is when it comes to helping people that are needy, physically needy, it's sort of messy, it's not easy. There's tension involved. How much do we do? How much does our help, uh, where does help stop and enabling begin? What do people have in terms of responsibility in the area of their own physical needs? How do we actually demonstrate or share the resources in a meaningful way that God would be glorified and that we would not be seen or glorified? All of these are tensions that we live in. We walk by people every day where we see physical needs, and we're not sure always how to handle it, and I want to address that this morning, and the way I like to do it, if you're looking at the main idea of this, of this sermon this morning, basically my goal is would help us to close the distance between the needs we see, no matter how great they are, and our personal involvement in them. Today's message is designed to help us close the gap. Close the distance between what we see in terms of needs around us and our personal involvement. And to do that, what we're going to do is sort of crack open what I would call five really important truths that help us decide what we can and should do in any given situation. And like I said at the start, it's messy, it doesn't always fit, and that's why it's sort of an overview this morning. Now, where we're going to start today is actually with some statistics, and I just felt like we need to kind of feel the tension in terms of what's really going on out there when it comes to hunger and poverty. And I'm just going to walk down through these. We've got to go really fast. Number one, did you know that almost a billion people around the world go to bed hungry every night? 200 million of them are children. The vast majority of hungry people... 827 million, live in developing countries where 14% of the population is undernourished. Number three, poor nutrition causes nearly half of deaths in children under five. 3.1 million children die each year of hunger. That's about 16,000 children every day. Fill up Oracle with children every day who die from malnutrition. Here's a fourth thing. The world produces enough food to feed everyone. Did you know that? 
The problem is that many people in the world don't have sufficient land or resources to grow or income to purchase the food. Number five, poverty is the principal cause of hunger. Undernourishment kills more people every year than malaria, tuberculosis, and AIDS combined. Wow. Let's move a little closer to home. In California, over five million people suffer from hunger or live in fear of going hungry. Even closer to home, in Alameda County, 11% of Alameda County's population lives at or below the federal poverty line. Number eight, a recent Alameda County Food Bank study shows that half of client households had to choose between paying their rent and paying for food. 35% of all individuals receiving emergency food assistance in Alameda County are under the age of 18. Well, here's the most important statistic because, you know, you look at all that and maybe you just feel a little bit more weighty with that, but here's the most important statistic. One out of every one of us can do something about this today. Turn to the person next to you and say, you can do something about this. Do that. That that sounded a little incredulous, by the way. (laughs) It felt like I heard people saying, you really can't do anything about this. (laughs) But you can is statistics don't transform anyone's lives. And I didn't expect the statistics to do that. But I believe that God's word can transform all of our lives. And we're gonna look at five principles from God's word this morning that will help us close the distance between the needs we see and our personal involvement. Are you following me? So here's the first one. If you're taking notes, the first truth that we wanna look at is that there's a command in place. When it comes to viewing poverty and viewing hunger, there's a command in place. And we're going to start in Deuteronomy 15, and we're going to just do a whirlwind. I'm going to read through a lot of Scripture right now, because we love Scripture here at Three Crosses. And some of this needs a little bit of context, but I'm going to do my best just to kind of throw it out there like seed of a farmer and letting it just land in the the soil of our hearts. Look at verse 7 of Deuteronomy 15. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Now, if you have your own Bible there, those two words are really important, tight-fisted or hard-hearted. Say those two words, tight-fisted or hard-hearted. Those are fantastic words. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do not do so with a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in the land. Isn't God amazing? I mean, God gave his children Israel as they were coming into the promised land reminding them how to treat each other and how to treat aliens, people that were outside of their, of their own covenant relationship with God. And basically he said, don't be tight-fisted. Open your resources. Share your resources. Because as you do that, God will bless. He even factored in a way for every several years, every seven years actually to be exact, there was to be a canceling of debt. 
And so if you were, you were paying someone back for something, you might have gotten a little behind in your payments, you couldn't quite meet the deadline, and at the seventh year, boom, everything goes back to zero. I, wouldn't you love to have that today? Wouldn't that be great? You know, you get the thing from the IRS, it's the seventh year, your debts are released. You know, like, whoa, that would be great. Mortgages, car payments. God built into his own economy uh, what, what might be considered a distributive justice so that there's a redistribution of wealth so that, so that there wasn't this people getting more and more and more while everyone's getting less and less and less. God factored that in. And then there was this year of jubilee, seven sevens, where all land went back, all slaves went back, unless they wanted to stay with their master. It was incredible. God built this in. Now, we don't have any proof anywhere in Scripture that the children of Israel actually carried this out to the degree that they were supposed to. And in fact, their uh, exile was in part because they did not follow that principle of letting every seven years the land go fallow, not to produce crops, trust God for the, the sixth year and then back into the eighth year. And this was something that God was teaching his people to be open-handed, to trust him for his resources and to give and, and share with others. Need to go on. Let me just give you some other scriptures. They're not gonna be on the overhead so, and I think they're on your outline, but I'm gonna read them quickly. Leviticus 19, nine and 10. Here's another beautiful part of this. God says to the people, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. God had a way that people that were poor and didn't have resources could actually come into people's vineyards and take what was left from the harvesters. Don't go back and do it again. Leave the edges open for the alien, for the poor. What a beautiful picture that is. Don't scrounge every little point. Don't wring it all out for yourself. Leave something for others around you. Psalm 82, 3 and 4, the, uh, the psalmist Asaph writes, defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the, from the hand of the wicked. Speaking of the kind of fasting God has chosen for us, Isaiah 58, familiar for some of us, verse 7. So that it is not, is it not, speaking of the fast God wants us to have, is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? God factored ways in for people to deal with their own flesh and blood, to deal with needs, to deal with the calamities that happened. Coming to the New Testament, the book of James, 127, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained or unpolluted by the world. James 2, 15 through 17, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. God says, if you have a legitimate faith, your faith will result in actions of giving to those in need. The distance between what we see and our involvement gets shrunk. 1 John three seventeen and 18 if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Okay, l- listen, I, th- I think we get the point. And we could go for hours this morning. The, the Bible is full of look around and be a part of meeting the needs of those around you. Be involved with the poor. Be involved with helping the hungry. And if somehow God's church really grabbed a hold of this, I really believe there could be systemic change, global change on the whole world scene of poverty and, and hunger. But we, we hold on. We are tight-fisted. We are hard-hearted. This is our default. So, so if that's going to happen, if we're going to see this command in place, here's what needs to happen. What will this require? It will require, write this down, it will require obedience. Say the word obedience. See, here's the problem. When we see something that is wrong, when we see poverty, when we see hunger, here's a, we struggle with two I call it the paralysis of analysis. We stop and we say, we either say, there's too much to be done. Like when we just whispered to our neighbor, you can change this, you can make this different. We kind of say, yeah, not really. And so we kind of stop and we don't get involved. Uh, and the, the point is, is that obedience is required because there's a command in place. And I've been trying to practice this in my life and I'm still fumbling around in it. And, 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 but this happens all the time. Here's an illustration. A couple weeks ago, I was coming out uh, up at their 580 Marketplace, working out in the gym there, getting my car, and I'm leaving. And there's, there's a guy standing there with a sign as everyone's driving into that little market area there. Big sign says, uh, hungry and homeless. And he's got two little kids. And then big words, God bless you, you know. And so as I drive by, I see it. His eyes hit my eyes. And I, I just keep driving. And I get down to the light, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, like, Lord, what do you want me to do here? And, and it was just no audible message, but you need to go talk to this guy. Now, I hear, we hear those kinds of voices, and we say, no, that couldn't be God. <laughs> That's not God. And we just, we just drive on. But, you know, on this occasion, I, I won't say on every occasion, believe me, there are times I go by, and I hear that voice, and I go, ah, busy, not to, you know, we've all been there. So I turn around, I go back, I park, I get out, and I'm talking to this guy, and my goodness, the story, he comes from Italy, he hears that there's this great opportunity in America, somebody promises him a job, he moves his whole family out here, and then he's at work for about three weeks, he loses his job. He's in, a, in an apartment, he tells me, down in Union City. As the story went on, he's telling me he's living in Sacramento. There are things that are not quite right here. But I'm trying to listen through. Meanwhile, people are driving by. Some people are handing money out of their car. We'll pray for you. Pray for us. And they'll give names. Pray for my daughter, Susie, as they hand in money. And then other people go by, get a job. What are you doing begging money? I mean, I'm thinking, what would it be like to be standing there and having this kind of, you know, plus and minus experience? As I continue to talk to him, I found out that he's staying with his brother in Alamo right now and trying to get his life back together. He has no card, you know, work visa. He can't work here. And so I began to explain to him, well, you can come to our church. We provide meals on Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings. You can get help there. That's something we can do. And, you know, he couldn't do that. There were a lot of reasons why he couldn't do that. At the end of it all, it, frankly, it was a frustrating conversation with him. Two beautiful little children broke my heart. And I didn't even know what the whole story is. But God laid on my heart. I gave him something. 
I don't always do that. Gave them something, moved on, but just wrestling with that. Now, here's the principle that I've been learning. I just want to pass it on to you. And maybe it will connect with some of you. And here's the, this is the principle. The principle is learn to, be, learn to be faithful in small ways. Better to choose small and faithful over grand and never existent. You know, some people say, well, I want to do something significant with somebody. It's just too bad that I've never met somebody that I could do that with, you know. <laughs> Better to be small and faithful than to be grand and non-existent. And so this is the first part of paralysis analysis. We just kind of uh, can't do anything. I want to engage you, encourage you to engage. Stop. Talk to somebody. You don't even have to give them. In fact, frankly, most times it's not good. We've been coached by our partners with Salvation Army and other ministries that work with homeless and people on the streets. We've been coached. Don't give money. The money usually goes in other places and for other things and other causes. But I've also learned that that's up to God and the individual. And if God lays it on my heart to do something, praise God. But better to be small and faithful than to be grand and non-existent. The second thing that we do is we just have to face up the fact that frankly we don't care. I heard a lot of people driving by that, little guy, that guy and his little kids saying, get a job, you know, what are you doing? Just kind of haranguing him. And there's some of us, and that's a hard heart that's saying that, but there's some of us that we don't say, we'll smile, we'll wave, we'll even tip our hat a little bit, but we don't care. We just walk by, we don't, we don't want to engage. We see someone like that and we choose the other side of the street. We don't want to talk to people. And what I've learned, here's something you may want to jot down, I've learned that my feelings usually don't determine my actions. But if I choose the action that God wants me to choose, my feelings will follow. And that's why some of us who've gotten involved with things like cross streets up here, and you're kind of suspicious, and you're not sure what you can do, and you get involved in a ministry like that, at first your feelings are like, ooh, I can't do this. I can't walk up to somebody living under an overpass and actually pray with them and hand them some food, give them some socks to put on their feet. I can't do that. I'm not geared for that. And then all of a sudden you find yourself working in the kitchen and somebody says, hey, we're a little bit low tonight. Can you come with us? Okay, I'll come. Your heart's beating. I don't know if I can do this. And you get out there and something starts happening. And watch this. When you obey God, your feelings will follow. Suddenly you're so ingrained in a ministry that you couldn't be crowbarred out of because you're so passionate about what you see God doing there. And your feelings have come along. So some of us, the key to hard-heartedness and tight-fistedness is simply to obey God. Why? Because there's a command in place. Secondly, there's a condition at work. Say that with me. There's a condition at work. Oh, you guys need to pick up the pace here, okay? Okay, so, so the condition, I'm going to just go fast, the condition is our depravity. And before God's wonderful grace frees us and gives us a new life, we are, we are into ourselves. We are captain of our own ships. And a beautiful example of this is in Matthew 19. You remember where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He's talking about eternal life. How can I get to eternal life? How can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep all the commands. He says, I've done that from the day one. I've, I've kept the external commands of God's word. 
I have gone through the motions, he basically says. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the Bible says in verse 22, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now this, we all have heard this story before. This is a reminder to us that all of us have this default, like the rich young ruler, that has an idol in our hearts that we don't want to part with. And, and for this young man, Jesus knew it was money. It was stuff. And that's not true for everybody, but everybody has an idol. Are you following that? I mean, in fact, if you're outside of Christ, you're your own idol. You worship yourself. You were everything, you, it's you first and everything after you. No matter how benevolent you are, no matter how gracious you appear, if you don't have the grace of God alive and working in your life, you're number one. And until you become second to him, until you come to that point where you see that your sin makes you wretched and you are at enmity with God and praise God that his gracious invitation, there is a righteousness that comes by faith. He invites us to come into that, Romans 3. And when we come by faith, when we leave our life of sin and trust in Christ, boom, new life. The default has been turned over. But even when we give our lives to Christ, we still struggle, don't we? We struggle with selfishness. That default is always raising its ugly head in our lives. You know, back to Deuteronomy 15, if maybe you're still sitting there, in the first seven verses or first six verses, it talks about that year of canceling debts. You know, it, it struck me, the reason why God wanted his people to have that year of canceling debts was not only to create maybe a, a sense of economic justice, but watch this, to help his people not be uh, focused on greed and selfishness. It's just something about releasing that sets us free. So just in a timeless way, thinking about the year of canceling debts, we're no longer under the old covenant. That is not a principle in, in reality that we apply to our lives today, nor should we. However, here's the timeless principle. The timeless principle is this. Is there a debt? Is it time to cancel a debt Someone owes you, especially if you're struggling with being hard-hearted or tight-fisted. I don't know what God wants to do with that, but I really believe. That's Deuteronomy 15. That's the New Testament application. Is there a debt that you need to cancel because you are tight-fisted and hard-hearted? And you need to write a note to somebody today. You need to put something in the mail to somebody and say, you know that debt that you owed me? It's over. It's done. You don't owe me a dime. Now, I don't know what God wants to do with that, but there may be some beautiful stories come out of that. That may be an opportunity and a way for you to share what really is important in your life, and it may put you back into center with what's really most important in your life, and that is your relationship with God and how you're sharing that relationship with others. So what this requires, if you're taking notes, is transformation. Say that word, transformation. You see, feelings come and go. But what God wants to do is a systemic change in our hearts. He wants to change the default in our lives from, from being uh, covetous and, and selfish into being givers, into being lovers. So there's a command in place. It requires obedience, a condition at work. It requires transformation. Here's a third thing. There's a connection to consider. Say that with me. There's a connection 
to consider. When I think about closing the distance between what I see and what I can do, I have to remember that I represent the living God. This is the connection that we're talking about here. How do people see Jesus in us? Let's just remember how God did it. Remember? 2 Corinthians 8 9. Let's put this on the screen. Let's read this out loud. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Ready? Here we go. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And I love in chapter 9, verse 6, we'll read this one out loud together too. Ready? Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. All through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is giving us a beautiful treatment of what it means to really be stewards and to see everything we have as belonging to God and using it and sharing it and leveraging it so that the gospel work goes forward. And we should pattern the way God has been generous to us. And there's nothing like generosity to help people see the way God loves them. When we are generous, God softens the hearts of rebels. I met a gal in our lobby a couple weeks ago, and a beautiful young lady. She's from Columbia. I don't have time to tell her whole story. Maybe you'll meet her someday. But she, she just a lovely young lady. She uh, became a semi-pro soccer player in Columbia, and the mafia there, long story short, mafia tried to get her involved with what they were doing. She rejected it because she's a Christ follower. And therefore, they went after her family, and that became a problem, and uh, she had uh, family members murdered by this mafia, and she sought asylum outside of, the United, outside of Colombia, and now she's living here in the United States. It's an amazing story. And while she was in Colombia, her grandmother, who was a solid believer in Christ, had always had this heart for the village and had begun this little ministry of, of making a meal to, to give kids a Christmas because they live in a really poor village. And, and then her mother took that over. Now her mother is, is a Catholic, strong Catholic. Uh, the daughter was telling me, not sure if she has a saving relationship with God, but a beautiful gracious person and so here this little gal in the lobby telling me that once a year she does this little fundraiser where she makes Colombian food for as many people as will eat it and all of the money goes for this little village project that helps children in the village get a little Christmas gift and a solid meal and it's the only thing they have all year long that they look forward to. And we talked about maybe, maybe there could be a partnership. Well there wasn't a strong enough alignment between the gospel work of that and what actually was happening with that. But all I could say to this beautiful young lady was, thank you for your heart. Thank you for wanting to be generous because your generosity opens the doors. It gives people a sense of, of what God may want to do in their lives. When you're generous to neighbors, and by the way, that little gal, she's got a little thing. I told you that little fundraiser coming up. We can't really promote it real big, but I'll tell you what, if you just write to us or email us and say, Colombian girl, just say that. We'll send back where that thing is. You can go. You can support it if you want to do that. It's, I just think it's a story of spontaneous generosity and help to people who would not otherwise get it. Proverbs 19.17 says this. Let's read it out loud together. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will re reward him for what he has done. I love that. 
Generosity isn't only measured in dollars. It can be measured with time, physical resources, personal assistance, forgiveness, patience, service. The list goes on and on and on. I make it a little desire in my own heart and a little goal that I'm helping somebody every week. Just outside of my, not church-related, just people in my neighborhood, people that I meet, I just want to be a servant to somebody. I don't want to finish my week and turn around and say, where have I served someone and come up with a goose egg? This is what God wants us to do. And how can I do that generously? And I am learning just like you. Don't put me up on a pedestal. Just hang around me long enough and you'll know that that's a futile design anyway. I'm just like any one of us trying to make an impact. But watch this. We've got to do it in a sense where we recognize generosity is the key. So if you're writing down notes, this will require generosity. It will require giving and sharing of your resources. Number four, there's a caution needed. Okay. Now, the sad thing about this little point here is that some of you are saying, finally, right now. Uh, <laughs> what I mean is that we, we, we tend to kind of camp out in the caution, and, I, and yet it's important. The caution goes something like this. We, we need to recognize that not everybody's story is right. There's a lot of people out there. There are people that come to our church on a weekly basis asking for housing, asking for food, asking for assistance. And sometimes the attitude is kind of like, hey, look, we're believers. What are you going to do for us? Oh, you're a believer. Where, where is your church? Well, I've never been to one. Oh, that's weird. Or maybe I've been to one, but I've never stayed there. Why? Because we just sort of like go through all the resources. I'm talking very honestly. This is a hard subject. Just pray for your pastor right now. Lord, help him to do this right. Because I, I don't want to hurt anybody. But believe me, there are stories and situations and people with bleeding hearts coming and saying, you've got to help me. This is a dire need. And you help them with a little bit of, mm, I don't know, and then they're gone. So we have worked really hard in our benevolence ministry over the years to craft a policy that goes something like this. If you're not involved in community, if there's not direct pastoral relationship in your life where you're accountable for your spiritual life, what we can do for you financially is really, really small. But if you're involved in a community and you are most importantly put yourself before the leadership of the church and surrender your life to Jesus Christ in submission to him and that becomes and that's a pattern in your life and something crops up and you have a financial need then there are great things that have happened in our benevolent ministry. We have helped people sustain new jobs, kept them in their houses. Help them to negotiate uh, pay downs in their billing and restructuring in their budget so they can get back on their, but not without accountability and a sense of submission to God first and to leaders second and not just coming in for a quick hit and getting out and doing it somewhere else. And this is hard. People do not understand and we always don't understand. Pray for leaders. Pray for our church in this way. But I read scriptures like 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his, his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow! We have huge responsibility. 
Did you know, I read a book recently, it's a book by Ken Witzma. Thank you, Paul, for giving me that book, one of our ushers. Pursuing Justice is the name of the book, and, and he writes in this book, this is an amazing statement, compassion can sometimes kill. <laughs> and he cites the illustration of when the GIs in World War II were moving through Poland in the final months of the war, and they were liberating the concentration camps. Our U.S. GIs were coming across people that were so emaciated. Their skin was literally penetrating, their bones were penetrating their skin. They hadn't eaten, they were literally starving to death. And our GIs, bless their hearts, they pulled out their own rucksacks, their own MREs, their own food, and they gave the food to the people that they were ministering to by freeing them from their concentration camps. They were so broken. But what they didn't realize in these great acts of sacrifice themselves, they were killing the people. The people could not handle solid food. Doctors eventually had to go up to the front lines of the liberation to say, stop giving them solid food. They need liquid diet. They need soft tissue diet. They need some, they cannot handle this solid food. It's killing them. People died. Can you imagine surviving a concentration camp but dying because you ate spaghetti and meatballs? I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Sometimes compassion doesn't always do the job. Sometimes it misses the mark. You know, another problem we have when it comes to this, by the way, if you're taking note, what you need is discernment in this. You need discernment. You need to ask God. You need to get resources. You need to get help. Because discernment helps us to know where we should engage and where we shouldn't. Church history records during the 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th century, do you remember the religious orders of the Franciscans and the Dominicans? They practiced the vow of poverty. They thought that when Jesus said, take nothing for the journey, that was the way we should live our lives. And that's also a, a misappropriation of what Scripture says. You're not any more spiritual because you take a vow of poverty. Unless you're so tight-fisted and so selfish that you're just hoarding it all for yourself, then maybe a vow of poverty is good. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make that I hope that you're getting is that there's a caution needed, and the caution requires discernment. And here's the last thing, and we're totally way out of time. And there's a commendation and a condemnation that is coming. And you know, most, most of us know Matthew 25, this beautiful passage where Jesus said, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came and visited me. When did we ever do this, they asked. And Jesus answered, when you did it for the least of these of mine. And then he says, come now, you who are blessed of my Father. This requires evaluation. We need to stop and say, am I thinking about that day that's coming? Am I living my life in view of that day? There's a command in place. It requires obedience, a condition at work. It requires transformation, a connection to be made. It requires generosity. A caution needed requires discernment. A commendation that's coming, it requires evaluation. And there's so much more we could do, but we are out of time. That's okay. Because I think that's plenty enough. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, help us as your people to show compassion on the hungry. Please, Lord. And we can all grow in this area. Not one of us can say we've arrived. 
And most of us will never be a Mother Teresa or someone of that global recognition, but in our own little spheres of influence, we might be that person. In fact, Jesus, you told us in Matthew 25, we would be you in that moment, ministering to you. And so, Lord, open our hearts and cause us to be open-handed today. And Lord, gauge our motives, even as we bring this offering right now, Lord, for our benevolent fund. This is in no way a a twisted um, manipulation. But Lord, we do love to help those who are in need, and there are many. Thank you for cross streets. Thank you for people who come alongside of those. Thank you for our budget coaches. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful work of compassion and care. And I pray now, Lord, as we bring this offering right now, Lord, whatever we bring, whether it's a few dollars or a lot, whatever it is, that it would be given just as a way to touch somebody who has a need. And Lord, if you brought someone to this service this morning that is without you, may they know that this, the most important offering they could bring right now is their own life. No matter how young or old they are, to receive the gift of life to forsake all sin, repent of sin, and run after Jesus to follow him, Lord. Let that be the case in somebody's life here this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.